friends, would you open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3? We're going to look at Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7, and I'm going to read the rest of the chapter for us. Hear now God's word from Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we hear this pronouncement on the people of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and that pronouncement is of unbelief. And we know we see the seeds of that in our own heart even this morning. And so we plead with the Father in Mark chapter 9, I believe, help my unbelief. You're going to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. You're going to do that through your written word. You're going to do that in our presence. And so we ask boldly in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this is a very dense passage. It's a very complicated passage. But I just want to draw out from it this stunning dynamic. You have these two things working in opposition to one another. And we're going to understand in our passage how these things interlocked with each other and how we move forward with these dynamics present. The dynamics are these. On the one hand, all of us are prone to self-deception. All of us can deceive ourselves. All of us can lie to ourselves. We're prone to self-deception. On the other hand, we're called into this community together, this church, which is going to be a community of honesty. That means you have trickster hearts on the one hand, colliding with a truthful church on the other hand, and Hebrews 3 is going to unpack how those dynamics interplay with each other. Let's just briefly look at those each in turn. First of all, I want to start with a trickster heart. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is the writer telling us? To say that the writer to the Hebrews is suspicious of the human heart would be an enormous understatement. I mean, look at our passage. He says, Do not harden your hearts. They always go astray in their heart. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not harden your hearts. The writer is suspicious. Predicting the human heart is like predicting the second coming. It's just not going to happen. We don't have access to this thing. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie The Usual Suspects, but there's that great quote in the movie from the character Verbal Kent in which he says towards the end of the movie, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. Now that may or may not be true, but I think the second trick is like it. 
I think one of the greatest tricks the devil has ever played is to convince us that our hearts are trustworthy. That these hearts that dwell within us, these are things that we can lean on and we can trust everything that they say to us. Now, there would have been a time in my Christian life shortly after I became a believer where I wouldn't have quite understood what all the fuss was about with the human heart. I mean, sin seemed pretty black and white to me. It's a binary decision between good and evil. You're going to choose what's good or you're going to choose what's evil, and there's not a lot of self-deception about it. And so if somebody wounds me, I have two choices. I can nurse that wound, which is to choose evil, or I can forgive that wound, which is to choose what is good. If I hear something juicy about another person, I have two choices. I can choose to gossip about that person, which is evil, or I can choose to keep my big mouth shut, and that is choosing what is good. If you would have referred me to verse 13 about the deceitfulness of sin, I probably would have thought you meant you had inadvertently gone to a movie that had a sex scene in it. I mean, you got tricked by the deceitfulness of sin and you weren't ready for it because I thought that the battle lines for choosing good over evil were very clear. Choosing good versus evil was kind of like the battle lines in our fight for national independence. I mean, the enemy, they're going to be wearing red coats. They're going to speak in a sinister British accent. And Mel Gibson is going to tell us what to do. I mean, the battle lines are very clear when you're choosing good over evil. But now I realize our fight with sin is more like urban guerrilla warfare. There's no flags. There's no uniforms. There's no warnings about what's happening here. I think I was utterly deceived by the deceitfulness of the human heart. Now I find myself sitting across the table in conversations with people that utterly exposes what it means to be deceived by our own hearts. It's always better to sit with somebody else and to hear them talk about their self-deception because we can see it in another person in ways we can't see it in our own heart. But just to listen to another person say some of these things is a way for us to realize that this mirror stands in front of me and I see the dynamics of my own heart. It's a trickster heart. And here are some of the things that I've heard recently, more or less, from people's mouths. Ready? Here's just a couple of things that folks have said to me. Maybe you've said this to me previously this week. I watch Game of Thrones. The nudity doesn't bother me because it's part of a story and it's art and these people are just actors. That came out of somebody's mouth. I don't regularly read my Bible because that feels legalistic and rote and binding and I learn more about God from experiences and nature anyway. I don't really have a problem with, and here's a blank, you could insert materialism or substances or porn or anger or food or Christian romance, paperback novels, whatever that is. I don't really have a problem or an addiction with this. It's just the first thing I reach for when things are tough and I need a release. This is coming out of self-deceived hearts and it's just tumbling out of people's mouths. And I think most of us in this room realize these are not polite things to say in Christian circles. If you're thinking that, just don't say that out loud. So for the rest of us who are learning to keep our big mouths shut and we're not going to say those specific lines to another person, how do we begin to put our finger on the ways that our own hearts are deceiving us in very extreme ways? 
I read a memoir recently, a very transparent, open memoir in which he listed categories of ways that his heart deceives him. I've got five here that aren't exactly what he was sharing, but I think that idea is so profound. And I just want to list these so that we can hear again, remind me the ways that my heart can actually be tricking and deceiving me. And here's just a few of them. Number one, denial. Have you ever had a problem? Have you ever denied having a problem with a certain sin? Now, some of you are saying in your heart, no, I've never done that. Perfect. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's denial. Number two, rationalizing, which could also be justifying or blaming. Have you ever rationalized sin? You've said, this is a hard time right now. These are unique circumstances. You don't understand my schedule, my spouse, my work demands. It's not always going to be like this. I'm not always going to be this way and do these things. That's rationalizing our sin. Number three, superiority. Have you ever found yourself coming down hard on somebody else's sin as a way of deflecting from your own sin? Number four, evading. Are there certain areas, hurts, history, actions that are off topic for you? If somebody brings up a certain area of your life or a certain area in general, you deflect from those things by changing the subject or giving vague answers or maybe you get angry with the person for bringing it up in the first place. Number five, intellectualizing. Have you ever made an issue of the heart a game of the mind? When you think about sin, it becomes about strategizing and problem solving and tweaking the details of your life and not brokenness and confession and humility. It becomes intellectualized and stale in front of you. These are just a few areas that expose the ever-moving target of the heart. I'm convinced more than ever that the last heart in the room to understand what's going on is the heart that's speaking. It's me. It's the person from whom these lies are proceeding. I'm the last person to see this in myself. And verse 13 ups the ante on this dynamic that's happening. It reminds us that not only are our hearts lying to us, but that they have an agenda. That you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The trajectory of a deceived heart is to be hardened in unbelief. Our hearts are tricksters. Our hearts, they speak with a slant. Our hearts, they draw lines with rounded edges. They leave motives in very shadowy gray areas. And they're not done with us until our hearts are hardened in unbelief and dead to the very voice of God. If that's true... If that kind of heart dwells in every single one of us that are gathered here this morning, what what can I do about that? How can I bring an antidote or a balm if I'm so much a part of this problem in my own heart? And I think maybe the hardest thing for us to hear this morning from God's word is that if I am such a big part of my own problem, I'm such a small part of my own solution. I need other people. I need other people. I cannot do this by myself. I cannot hear truth by myself. I cannot self-examine my own heart. I need the help of other people. And this is where the dynamic of the truthful church comes into play with our trickster hearts. God, in this mysterious, wonderful, humbling design, meets our trickster hearts with this truthful community, with the church. Look at verse 13. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened. What's so beautiful about this is I've become such a big part of the problem in my own life, but I actually get to participate in the solution for the life of this community. I play a part in my own self-deception, but now I get to be a truth speaker in the community that God puts me in. There's an interdependency that's happening here. All of a sudden, I need the church, and the church needs me, and we begin to lean on each other as this body of Christ. Now, this is what a truthful church is, and I just very briefly from Hebrews want to point out these two points of application. What do we say, and how do we say it? If I'm participating in this truthful community, if this challenge is on me to be an exhorter, what's the content of what I share and how do I share that with other people in this community? What do we say? Well, the writer to the Hebrews in our passage, he doesn't actually say what to say. He just says, exhort each other. But he can say just that because he's actually been showing us what to do all the while, right? For this entire letter, he's writing to this persecuted, beaten down church. And he's been showing us, this is what exhortation every day looks like. It's what I've been doing to this church. And so everything that the writer to the Hebrews has already said is relevant for us to speak to each other. Everything he said about Jesus being the prophet and the priest and the king, everything he's already said about Jesus building this unbreakable chain of salvation, everything he's already said about Jesus being the faithful member of God's house as a son, all of that is relevant to what we're sharing with each other. But I want to point something else out. I want to point out the content of the writer to the Hebrews And this is a very dense thought, so hang on to your seats and bear with me for a moment because I want to see how one scripture writer uses scripture in his own letters. We've talked about this before. We need to understand that when a writer, a biblical writer, sits down to write God's inspired word, he's not a robot, right? The writer to the Hebrews, he doesn't have his eyes closed and God is just moving his hand across the page and he automatically writes down what God is dictating to him, right? We understand that a writer has to think about these things. He has to make an outline. He has to take notes. He has to read his Bible. He has to memorize scripture. And God takes those words, which are 100% man, and he inspires and breathes something that is 100% God. That's what happens in the inspiration of scripture. And that's why Paul doesn't sound the same as Isaiah, who doesn't sound the same as Luke, who doesn't sound the same as Peter, because each of them apply their own personalities. I say all that because the point is, the writer to the Hebrews has to know his Bible well to use his Bible well. He has to be saturated in these things of Scripture. Now, John, he was preaching last week from the beginning of chapter 3, and he pointed out in the very beginning, made this brilliant connection between the writer talking about Jesus as being faithful in God's house over Moses, goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 12. That's where God actually speaks to Moses and he says, you are faithful in my house. And so the writer to the Hebrews, as he's writing chapter 3, we already know that his mind is really in Numbers chapter 12, right? Well, then in our passage, without ever referencing that, he begins to quote Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95, it's a summary of the story of the 12 spies who go into the promised land as the people have exited Egypt, and they come back with a bad report, 10 of them, and they say, we can't possibly conquer this land. God's not going to give it to us. 
And so they rebel against God and they say, we're not going to enter the promised land. And God judges them and says, you're going to wander for 40 years and not a single person from this generation except the two faithful spies will enter my rest. Psalm 95 is a summary of that. Those events actually happen in Numbers 13 and 14. You see the the writer's mind, it's back there. This is what's happening right now. The writer is thinking of the faithfulness of Jesus in God's house, and his mind goes to Numbers 12. That means the writer begins to think about the faithlessness of Israel in God's house, and so the writer to the Hebrews is thinking about Numbers 13 and 14 by way of Psalm 95. But he gets even deeper than that, because at the very end of this quote from Psalm 95, verse 12, he pleads with us, look at this, to take care lest our hearts trick us and we fall away from the living God. His mind is in numbers by way of Psalms. That title, living God, is familiar to us, but it's actually used very sparingly in scripture. And one of the places it's used is in Joshua chapter 3, which means the writer has been thinking about the story of the faithlessness of Israel and God's house and this former generation that's judged. But then he goes all the way to Joshua chapter 3, in which Joshua, the new leader, not Moses, is standing in front of this new generation, not the generation that was judged. And he says to them, When we enter the land and when we conquer it, you're going to see that the living God is among you. The writer to the Hebrews is thinking about numbers and Psalms and Joshua and he strings these things together. And what you witness with a person who's not actually quoting the Pentateuch is a mind that is absolutely saturated with scripture. If pocket Bibles would have always existed, you know, the little Bibles that you can throw in your pocket and walk around with, if we had always had those and you had found Jesus's pocket Bible lying around and you had picked that thing up and you had turned to Deuteronomy, which he uses in the temptation or the Psalms or the scroll of Isaiah, you would have seen those pages in Jesus's Bible worn thin. If you would have found the writer to the Hebrews Bible lying around, you would have opened that thing up. The pages of Numbers and the Psalms and Joshua would be losing their binding and falling out of the pocket Bible. These are minds that are absolutely saturated with scripture. Here's the import for us. Our challenge, our calling is to exhort each other all the more as it is called today. If we do not know God's word, if we do not study this word, if we don't memorize this word, if our minds are not saturated with this word, what do I possibly have to share with another person in an exhortation? If I'm called to exhort somebody and I don't know the Bible, what could I possibly say to that person? Do I give them a line from a Chris Tomlin song? Do I give them something that I learned at a summer camp years ago? My sister is being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My brother, he is starving for a morsel of truth. What could I possibly share with this person if I don't know God's word? We just watched the writer to the Hebrews. He takes this fumbling, struggling church who is on the precipice of unbelief and he takes them to the book of Numbers by way of Psalms. And you and I, if we're honest, we have trouble finding anything in the Gospels to give to another person. I don't think we've grasped the seriousness of the situation. 
We're not just reading and studying our Bibles for our own sake and our own spiritual health. We read our Bibles for the spiritual health of every single person that Jesus has placed in our lives. If the church is anything, we are a truth-telling community. And what we say comes from the Holy Spirit using the words of Scripture in our lives and in other people's lives. Christians are the actors, the scripture is our script, the Holy Spirit is the dramaturge, the world is our stage, and woe to the church that says, I can't remember my lines. I don't know what to say to another person who is struggling with the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the encouragement to all of us. Here's the encouragement to every single one of us who feels exposed by our lack of knowledge of the Bible we begin to commit ourselves to study this book a couple of minutes a day, we'll know more of scripture tomorrow than we do today. We'll know more a week from now than we do tomorrow. We're going to know more a month from now and a year from now. And the Holy Spirit will use these words to speak truth to our community. He's going to do that because he promises to do that in our church. That's the content of what we say. When we're called to exhort each other, we're called to use the words of Scripture with each other. Now the question is, how do we say it? How do we begin to do this? We understand we have trickster hearts. We understand that God places that in a truthful community, the church. We understand that he's going to use the words of Scripture for this. How do we say it? How do we build rhythms in our lives in which we're being exhorted and we're exhorting other people? How do I get my trickster heart to rub shoulders with a truthful church even in the times where I don't want to and I don't feel like it? If you're asking these questions, you're going against the grain of an American culture that has always told you for your entire life that you can do anything you set your mind to by itself. You could do it by yourself. American evangelicalism, we've taken this, we've repackaged it, and we're selling each other on a world in which the substance of my Christianity, what really matters in my Christian faith is what happens between me and God and my personal prayer journal. And anytime I gather on Sunday morning and participate in this community, anytime I touch the life of the church throughout the week, that's just the icing on the cake that doesn't matter as much as my personal spirituality. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, your heart is lying through its teeth. It's not being honest with you. One of the greatest tricks that the devil has ever played is to convince you that your heart is trustworthy and that you can do this thing by yourself. That is absolutely not true. The very earliest pictures we have of the church, the church that understands that Jesus has risen from the dead to defeat death and to bring new life to the world, you get a glimpse of the church in Acts chapter 2 and what are they doing? They're gathering together day by day. They meet in big groups to hear the apostles' teaching. They meet in small groups in each other's houses so that they can break bread and share with one another. They're meeting together day by day. Here we are in the book of Hebrews, which is 30 years later, and the church is beaten down and it's persecuted, and the exhortation to this church is to meet and exhort each other daily. This is what we do in light of the resurrection. That means that here at CPC, Columbia Presbyterian Church, we at the most basic entry level plea 
call upon our church to have two touches with this church body every single week. We call every single person to gather and participate on Sunday morning. In a day and age where Sunday morning worship attendance is not as important as it once was, we're calling on each other not just to come and sit in the back of the room with arms folded and leave as soon as the thing is done, but to come and engage and participate. And then we call on each other during the week to meet in a life group. If you've joined a life group, you meet with it. If it doesn't have a stated meeting that week, what are you doing to participate in the body life of this church by having people into your homes, by going into other people's homes, by getting to know somebody you don't know, by encouraging and exhorting one another? These are the two ways we have that we get directly from passages like Hebrews chapter 3. These venues aren't perfect. Sunday morning, it's not perfect. We got a ton of room to grow here. Life groups, they're not perfect. We have a ton of ways that we can continue to grow and learn how to do them better. And I think that if we had all eternity here on earth, we could sit back and talk about how to do Sunday morning and how to do life groups better. And we could talk and we could talk and we could tweak and we could tweak and we could never end up doing it. But we don't have all eternity because the writer to the Hebrews says... Exhort each other as long as it is called today, because then tomorrow Jesus comes. Let's pray together. Jesus, I don't want to hear this. I want to learn that I can do Christianity by myself, that I am sufficient in myself, that the most important things that happen between me and you happen in my own private time. And you're drawing us through your word into a community of people that will speak truth to each other, that will call each other on our junk, and that will point each other towards you. I pray that you would make us that kind of church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.